jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. This is Pieces of Work on jasoncharles.net. My name is Christian Cipollini. I am an organized crime historian. I wasn't even sure uh, when I was young that this is what I would do. It began with realizing that I was pretty good at writing and not a whole lot of other things, but I had no idea what to do with that um, in my youth. But the uh, fire, you could say, was lit uh, by elements, particularly that my father was a narcotics officer uh, for the state police. So growing up with that influence, um, though he tried to shield my sister and I from, I guess, the stresses of, of what that job brought, we got to see plenty that was pretty cool. Um, as a sort of lost youth, in a way, in my teen years, uh, attempted college. That didn't work out so good the first time, but I was a voracious reader, particularly of books about uh, culture, society, which also entails crime. And you see how all of this fits in. And I became really drawn to John Gotti, uh, not to glorify this, but um, my pathway to this career really began in 1989, 1990, reading about New York's infamous mob boss. So jump ahead, kid's wife uh, went back to college, realized I wanted to be a journalist and took that path, which if you go into journalism, it depends what you go into. Mine didn't start off as a crime reporter. Uh, actually, I started off as an entertainment reporter, writing for small independent magazines. The cliche, hustle and grind, that is pretty much what you do. Uh, stringer for a newspaper, which basically meant I was a freelancer for a while. And then one day, uh, through some networking and the upside of social media, I was introduced to a former drug kingpin. And that is what solidified what had been building for 10, 15 years to become a crime writer. And that was my first big interview story with someone directly related to the organized crime history. There are many components to being a crime historian, a historian of any kind. Uh, in my niche field, there's journalists who are more investigative, and there are crime beat reporters. As a historian, at least in my field, in my experience, it's more of what I would call dealing with the ghosts of gangsters past. Finding the needles in the haystacks of history, what was misreported, elusive, um, what was ambiguous, what was unambiguous, try to sort it all out. Whereas an investigative reporter may be more real time, digging in to uncover, 
uh, a crime beat reporter, perhaps reporting basically on, you know, today's news. Mine was digging back into history to find the relevance. Why do they say history repeats itself? It's not just a cliche. Actually, we're still dealing today in real time with things that occurred 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago. So my component as a historian, particularly in crime, is to sort out what was fact, what was folklore between media, police reports, and general legends that were told. But you take all of that, all of these components of what people write today, what they wrote 100 years ago, what the media said at the time, what the police said at the time. And then if you're really fortunate, you might even find actual quotes, words from the subject of your book or whatever you're investigating at the time. My job is to sort through all of that muck and mess and try to make sense of it based on data it really is like data mining for those you know that are more in the contemporary world it's data mining of things from decades to a century ago to sort out because again it has relevance today whether you're talking about a prohibition type issue uh, the war on drugs uh, just gangsterism in and of itself. Why did it exist? That's my job. In today's day and age, the internet is wonderful for that, taken with a grain of salt, because not everything you see on the internet is true. Actually, some of the best sources to be a researcher of any kind are what I call the government clearinghouses, like the National Archives or Municipal Archives in New York, for example. These are great places to find age-old, legit, authentic documentation. Everything from ship travel records to passports to arrest records to uh, criminal trial testimony. Great source. Also, newspaper archives. Wonderful. Now, I'll give the internet uh, kudos for this. If you're researching, there are plenty of newspaper clearinghouses, digitized, searchable. Those are two of the greatest sources. Now, human sources, again, though, you have to take that sort of in stride as any kind of an investigator, researcher. I have to take everything with that grain of salt and try to put it together to see what is the most accurate. Even some government files, you have to remember that everyone has a narrative. But uh, the greatest sources of personal photographs or letters, those come from living relatives or individuals who had some even indirect relation to the subject of what you're researching. Being a crime historian, generally, again, you're dealing with a lot of subjects that tend to be pretty old. On the flip side, I also deal with some real-time current subject matter. There's where it can get a little dicey 
and you have to walk a fine line. If you get into this kind of field, you will deal with the hazards of people who may or may not approve of what you're writing about. So you, you have to be you have to be cautious, just like any field where you're digging into seedier underground areas. Those kind of things are naturally going to provoke um, red flags. They're going to make you cautious. They're going to make potential subject matter people cautious. Investigative journalists, and there are plenty of horror stories of what happens like in Mexico, for example, digging into areas that are very real time and very dangerous. As a historian, perhaps not as much risk as an investigative journalist in that sense, but also dealing with organized crime as a whole is opening up some Pandora's boxes. So you kind of have to walk a fine line but respect all parties involved. And sometimes it turns out really good because you don't want to put yourself in a dicey situation. Have I ever been in one? There were a few times I I felt a little nervous. Um, One time, for example, I was told by a subject of, of a project I was working on that one of this individual's former bosses wanted to meet me in a specific location on a certain day and uh to be honest there was a part of me that was really excited like oh i'm gonna get to meet this anonymous figure and then another part of me was the oh shit moment where um maybe i should have a gps tracker on me for my family just in case uh long story short the meeting never happened because this individual had to suddenly uh leave the uh country so we'll just leave it at that um but yeah it it can happen but that's because i i was dealing with something a little more real time and maybe my fight or flight went into effect just because it is but at the same time when you're covering organized crime there's also an element of it's a dichotomy Yes, this is secret societies you're dealing with, but there's also a lot of ego. That's the dichotomy. The ego wants to tell you stories, wants to have a little notoriety, whereas, you know, the pragmatic side, they don't want you to know everything. What makes my job easier, but possibly more hazardous, is dealing with the ones that do want to tell you the stories Uh, you have to be very careful about how much of it something i learned when i was an entertainment journalist uh, when you have a rapport with your subject and it becomes more conversational and things might be revealed that even i as a journalist decide hey they may be okay with me writing this but i feel like it doesn't fit or it might be violating someone else. And I don't want to do that. I don't know if that goes against the code of journalism or not, but I believe it all, it plays into use your common sense as best you can and play along. Some may say, Hey, are you just glorifying these guys? Uh, Do you just want the shock and awe? Uh, It's something I 
and all my colleagues get asked once in a while, maybe even accused of, I don't think it's glorification. I think, I think pop culture's glorified it on its own. I don't care if it's Al Capone, El Chapo. These are pop culture and law enforcement's hype them. My job is to try to get to the bottom of it. What's the real, what's the mythology? So I found out when I started researching to actually write some historical crime books, contrary to what I had thought, sometimes the bad guys, quote unquote, were even more forthcoming than some law enforcement. Doing this, don't think the police are always going to be willing to throw a statement at you. And don't always think the criminals are going to clam up. You never know. You might get more from one uh, than the other than you would expect. But yeah, that was that was something that kind of struck me as odd until I, I really remembered back to my dad and how, well, he tried to shield me from stuff as a kid. So I, those guys naturally know not to say a whole lot. So I, I get it. It's just, it's a lesson to be learned. If you get into the true crime field, you'll find your information in some of the most unusual places you wouldn't expect sometimes in other places where you think, oh, they're going to be so willing to tell me everything. And they're willing to tell you nothing. Another great source, attorneys. Attorneys will be more talkative than you might think about cases, especially if they're not directly involved or they were years ago. I got a lot out of them. But yeah, that's fans. I, I don't like to readers, my followers, something I've learned. I listen and I have been pointed to some real needles in haystacks based off of little bits of information that really incredible people have pointed out to me through social media, wrote me an email, providing you that lifeblood to, to even do this because they're consuming what you're putting out there. They're the ones that willingly offer, want to help and give you something that you're just like, what? How? I never saw that because they do. They have an eye for it. It's, it's great. Like, they're some of the greatest sources of tips to point you into areas that no one's shown that proverbial sh flashlight on that even we experts get our asses checked back to humble land when we realize we don't know it all. But that's also what makes me want to do this is because there's so much still out there to be understood, to be found. That's the part that makes my ass go, oh. There were more than a few times that a follower or friend or reader reached out to me with information that was just mind-blowing, and I, I'm indebted to them. Too many to actually to even go into here, but I'll give you the most recent example. So I'm putting the finishing touches on a book about somebody very current, and I'll throw it out there. It's El Mano Negra, Jose Manuel Martinez. Uh, every, you can Google him. Uh, the Central California Central Valley quote unquote serial killer. That's a whole other topic. 
But um, recently, a reader, a follower reached out to me, and I want to say it was through Twitter or possibly Instagram, curious about the book, and I just chatted, explaining, you know, where I was at with it, and thanked him, and then he sent me a screenshot of something he found online that pointed me to a case that I didn't know was even related. I don't want to give everything away because it's going to be in a book, but I'll just say it was a Corrido singer that was um, unfortunately uh, shot and killed uh, back in the 90s. He was shot at once and wasn't killed. People will probably be able to figure this out. Um, the individual I'm writing about apparently was part of the We Missed Him crew back in the early 90s. And he never told me about this, but I had this one follower who sends me the actual proof. Anyway, and then it was confirmed. I was just, I know this sounds, so I don't want to give everything away. Let's just say it was another one of those moments where someone who follows me and my work took the time to reach out because they spotted something and was simply asking, hey, did El Mono Negra have something to do with this? And boom, it's like, oh, well, that's a big revelation that I better add into the book. So if you ever want to do this and be like an investigative or, or even a historian, there's so much cool stuff that goes with it, even with the risks that are there and the disappointments. And there's plenty of disappointments. Gathering information from the highest points of organized crime is a difficult task. And that goes without saying, if law enforcement's having a hell of a time trying to get someone that insulated at the top levels, it's going to be really hard for a journalist or a historian to find out. That said, there's ways that the government can find things out or to prosecute, thanks to the RICO Act that was created. That way they can get everybody the underlings all the way to the top in researching yeah you can glean a lot of information from people on the lower levels but it's a hell of a task to try to get someone who is actively at the top even people who are no longer say active it's a world where people don't necessarily want to give you all the goods at least not at one time, even if they're willing to give you some, because there's so much at stake, even if they're not active in it anymore. Criminals have built and developed and evolved amazing systems, hierarchies, insulations, buffer zones, gatekeepers. The higher you go in an organization like that, the more insulated you are, but it's also the most dangerous position because like any CEO of any organization, I don't care what it is, I found there's always somebody else in that boardroom who would like to have your job. And in the underworld, usually there's only a couple ways to get someone out of their CEO seat and it's generally not very pretty. As for the violence part, 
and I said this in my Murder, Inc. book, the mob wasn't created to beat people up or to kill them. That is an unfortunate, unavoidable side effect of being a self-policing organization, though. Violence was the tool they discovered was the only tool they could use to enforce their own rules within their own ranks. So, and again, that's not a defense of it, but as a historian, you, you really come to find that's a constant across any organized crime group, Jewish, Irish, Italian, uh, Latin American, Russian, that it's the violence, dare I say, is like a necessary tool. Not, not always, because that makes it sound like it has to be, but they, they found it seemed to work for the most part. Organized crime would have never survived, particularly in the 20th century into you know, current times, if there wasn't some collusion or permittance of this. Now, whether that's to keep society happy by allowing some things that aren't supposed to be allowed, or more likely, it's all about the mighty dollar. It's always going to be about that. So criminals, particularly on an organized level, function much better, more successfully when they have collusion or otherwise known as corruption with politicians or oligarchs, uh, anyone with power. I don't care what country you're talking about or what segment of criminal activity in order for it to survive and flourish it needs legitimate society's assistance at the very least it needs legitimate society to just you know turn its cheek some could argue i do that history has shown us for at least a century, that organized crime purveys, has been a part of legitimate society, at least that far back, whether you're talking about the building of Las Vegas, uh, how corporate entities were restructured based on things they learned from the mob. These are things that can't be denied, that are still being studied. And conspiracy theories aside, there were plenty where the mob has been involved. Part of my job has always been to, okay, this sounds really cool, but where do I get to the heart of, of this? You know, did Lucky Luciano really help the World War II effort? Or was it something a little off of that? Uh, did Marilyn Monroe really get hit by the mob? Or was it just a lot of bad factors that happen to involve the mob. That's my job. And my interest in how society and the underworld intersect began from my cop dad having a love of history and me picking up on that and realizing, oh, wait, you can't just read about modern history without finding these elements of someone like Al Capone and what was prohibition? And what did that, what effect did that have on business and culture? 
things, those are just a couple examples, but it, that really triggers one to question. Again, take the conspiracy theories out of it, or at least that's what I try to do, and try to get to the heart of it because there usually is some real thing that happened. In today's society, there is no denying that pop culture, legal culture, economic culture have a big element of mob history in them. Not what built them. Maybe they built around the mob, but that's where we're at. It's an undeniable part of Americana for better or worse. And we're still trying to learn today. Why are there still organized crime groups? Why are there still vices and rackets and scams? That's a question. That's the million dollar question. I think my job and anyone who researches this is trying to go back to the roots of it to find out maybe so someone down the road can learn from that. Here's why this happens. Here's why society is drawn to this. Here's why these people felt so disenfranchised that they created their own empires. A big rhetorical question I've always asked myself, which came first, the gangster or the vice? Actually, I think there is a practical, logical answer to that. The vice came first because it's all about human nature and psychology and people want things gangsters didn't come along to create violence gangsters came along to fulfill needs that society wanted filled it's the law of supply and demand if there's anything to be learned from what people like i do for a living it's that age old lesson taught in every business 101 class supply and demand be it gambling narcotics alcohol even jobs uh, that maybe others didn't want to do somehow the mob would fill that role and when it came to business difficulties such as unions versus the corporate entities the mob seemed to fill roles there. Was it good? I don't think anyone's saying that necessarily. But what's good and what's bad, I find in this research, is again, a murkier area. There is no black and white answer, no line in the sand. I think it gets blurred when you ask, well, what was right and what was wrong? I think it was situationally dependent, very subjective. Um, I do believe in a broad stroke statement that organized crime tended to fill roles, beginning back with, if speaking about the mafia in particular, in Sicily, I don't think there's any argument, it originated to fill a role. There was a vacuum, there was no government legal help protection for the people but of course like anything the road to hell is paved with good intentions everything morphs 
into, uh, you know, something really good or something really bad. In organized crime, it can be argued, morphed into more of an opportunistic, less Robin Hood type of entity. But ultimately, that has become a part of society because even the upper world, as I keep referring to it, um, they wanted their drugs, booze, gambling, you name it. That's what they want. And when you take it away or say you can't have it, someone's going to supply it. They were organized. What truly is the most fascinating, mind-boggling at times part of doing this job, understanding or trying to, the personalities of the characters within these playing fields we call the underworld or gangland. Are they two-dimensional? No. What I found is like any other human being, even some of the most vile, are generally multi-dimensional, have many layers, just like the onion cliche. You peel them back. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't pretend to be one. But when you work in this field, you study and meet sometimes people who would otherwise be labeled as a sociopath. I believe in the psychology field, they stray from using that term, but I'll, I'll stick to it. Uh, they're psychopath who has no, no empathy whatsoever. Moral compass completely off, I guess, is a basic way to put it sociopath it's a stray <laughs> probably levels of how so but there's still some i find it fascinating that each of these individuals that i've studied and even the indirect and loosely associated members of their entourages all have unique personality traits are there any constants if you were going to do the broad stroke, I would say sociopathy of some degree or another. There's a lot of ego, uh, want to get ahead. But that aside, I would say the one constant with most organized criminals is opportunism. They are all opportunists. Yes, some do it out of desperation or start that way, some because they outright just love crime or, or you know, being an outlaw in every extreme and variation in between. But otherwise, researching criminals, <laughs> alive or dead, the most intriguing part, I think, is always going to be trying to figure out how I am like or unlike these people. Because I think we sit there and go, how could someone do that or live that? But could they or could I? It does. I don't think people want to say that out loud. I question like, wow, hmm, could I be like that person or, or not? Wait, who could really do this? And did they? What are they really like? Did they love? Did they hate? Did they not? There were many people long before I came along in this field that argued 
they were straight up empty, dead inside. Maybe some are, uh, but I found largely they are as dynamic as anyone else you or I included. It's an element of studying the shadier parts of society, subcultures, and psychology that is truly like a magnet. It draws you in. You want to know more. True crime as a whole has always been morbidly fascinating. Pop culture took full advantage of this. Everything from The Godfather to Goodfellas to Sopranos. I believe we as average human beings are drawn to maybe even live a little vicariously through, be it the fictional character or the real character, of people who almost are like folklore status that buck the system, if you will, or play outside the rules because they can. I think a lot of people, whether they admit it out loud or not, and I, I speak for myself, you know, growing up, sometimes I'd be like, yeah, I'd like to tell my boss to stick it right up his, you know, or, or the system. I don't like how the cards were laid out for me. What's nice is in real life, most of us, I don't think, go and decide to become racketeers or serial killers, rob a bank like Dillinger. But generally, I think why pop culture latched onto this is because collectively, yeah, we kind of like to live vicariously through a character that we're not, but it's kind of, I don't know, it's almost like we can pretend for a minute watching, you know, Scarface. Yeah, horrible, all this stuff, but you kind of root for this anti-hero villain, if you will. Um, and I think with organized crime in the movies and books, whether, again, whether they're real or fictionalized, it's not just entertainment. We really can vicariously live through that for a moment of, yeah, they stuck it to the man. That's, that's what I think psychologically is, is a big draw. And because it is such a culture of secrecy and things that go on parallel with the upper world, but the underworld is still such an unknown to most of us. And then also it's built into Americana. The, the, what was folklore of people like John Dillinger and Al Capone literally is now Americana. The American mafia, which is, you know, just a, a little semblance of its once heyday self will actually probably never go away completely. It's built into pop culture. It's built into legal structure. It's built into society. So I, I think that keeps people going and why you're always going to read books about this, why there's always going to be docudramas, documentaries, miniseries, music. It's just part it's part of us now. Good, bad, or ugly, it's part of us now. Being a crime researcher, I found there aren't many coincidences in organized crime history. And truth truly is stranger than fiction. 
where Hollywood feels the need to make up dramatic elements and arcs, even in biopics. My argument to that is you don't have to. There is enough real bizarre craziness in the underworld uh, to fill a million movie scripts. You don't need to add the extra elements. Trust me, they're there. What keeps me going in this? Many things. That's one of them is the element that to find your job is searching for the fact from the fiction. And there's this murky in between that I call the third side to every story. And it's an area filled with the most unusual, I can't believe this is true, kind of true moments. That's what makes organized crime history so damn fascinating. What keeps you going because there's always another stone to be turned over, some other corner to look in. My hope is that after I'm long gone, someone after me takes what I brought to the table and goes and finds even more. And again, this still has relevance to today because we're still dealing with a lot of the issues that were started in the early 20th century. It's a constant learning experience to be a crime historian. Even if you think you've encountered or dealt with it all at some point, there's always some surprise to put you in your place, but also super exciting. It's never a dull moment, but man, it's my lifeblood. You've been listening to Pieces of Work on jasoncharles.net. JasonCharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep. Very, very deep.